no need to point guns at us. There is no need. Don't point your gun at me. Please. I need to, I need to hear that. Don't point, he's pointing his gun at me. The one behind the truck. That's Denzel Sutherland Wilson, an indigenous Gitsand land defender, resisting a police raid on blockades in northern British Columbia, Canada, just this year. He published the Facebook Live video showing the conflict with police who are enforcing a court injunction aimed at stopping Wet'suwet'en people or anyone else from physically disrupting the building of a natural gas pipeline. Coastal GasLink plans to build the $6.6 billion 670-kilometer pipeline to ship natural gas across the province to the Pacific coast to access Asian markets. The big problem is that it will go through Wet'suwet'en territory and the hereditary chiefs, for years now, have said no. They're making the media leave. They don't want them to see us pointing their guns at us. I have nothing. Please take down your weapon. I'm asking you. Media, can you please get that footage of them pointing their gun at me? The whole ordeal has been a trigger for a national shutdown Canada movement. In solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en, many protesters have blockaded vital railways and ports across the country. Others snarled busy traffic routes and highways in major cities. They want all eyes on the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs and their fight to assert jurisdiction over their lands. For decades, the Wet'suwet'en have been embroiled in court battles over proposed contentious oil and gas pipelines armed with a powerful court decision that recognizes their right and title to land the hereditary chiefs have been unrelenting in their fight for asserting those rights i'm daryl vandenberg a radio news reporter turned podcaster in this episode of your world uncensored we're going to look at why this is all happening and what's really going on please stay calm no no injury stay calm please stay calm Again, that's Royal Canadian Mounted Police starting their raids this year. They want to stop people from blocking the road that leads to where the pipeline company is starting to work. Reinforcing the B.C. Supreme Court injunction issued December 31st, 2019. This area is now part of the police exclusion zone. Please gather your effects and immediately depart the area. If you refuse to depart the area... We are peaceful. We're willing to stay peacefully. We will not bring any violence, no force. We have no weapons, all we have is our voices. So we're gonna stay peacefully. You can decide if you'd like to invade or leave and not commit genocide. So those are your options. Police have arrested dozens of supporters and Wet'suwet'en members since launching armed raids. They even smashed the window of one pickup truck where a woman was apparently getting undressed. Even the media has been threatened with arrest and told not to film certain events, according to Vice News. RCMP continued their raid on other Wet'suwet'en checkpoints. Armed police and helicopters reportedly made their way up the road, setting up exclusion zones to halt the resistance. A similar injunction order was enforced last year, resulting in 14 arrests. Everyone was released with no charges. Please, 
trespassing. You're trespassing on what's on the land. Hey, look out. If you followed your own rule and protocol, you would not even be here. You don't even know that you're breaking your own law right now. The Wet'suwet'en have won rights and title to their lands. We did not hurt anyone. The hereditary chiefs say no. You cannot go through our lands, and under your law, the authority is them. Mr. Speaker, today's enforcement action in Wet'suwet'en territory was another humiliating stain on Canada's relationship with Indigenous people. The Canadian Constitution and the United Nations recognize the rights and title of Indigenous people. The Supreme Court recognizes the Indigenous hereditary systems of government. Nation-to-nation -nation negotiations are the responsibility of this government. Mr. Speaker, why has the government abandoned its duty and allowed the constitutional and legal rights of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs to be violated today? That's Green MP Paul Manley speaking in Canadian Parliament about the Wet'suwet'en's rights and title to their land and the conflict with RCMP. Bill Blair, the Liberal Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness, responded. Mr. Speaker, reconciliation is a crucial priority for our government and we are committed to renewing our relationship with Indigenous people. We will continue with the necessary work of building partnerships which is based on rights, respect and cooperation. The Commissioner of the RCMP is mandated to lead in, in the support of that site that's in a way that supports reconciliation and we will continue to protect the constitutional rights to peaceful protest. Mr. Speaker, RCMP officers are and have been in regular communication with the Wu'uset and Alexican councils and hereditary chiefs, as well as the protesters, to promote a constructive dialogue aimed at peaceful resolutions. A United Nations anti-racism committee has called on Canada to shut down three major resource projects, Coastal GasLink being one of them. The federal opposition conservative leader Andrew Scheer is worried about the implication of a UN resolution on the rights of Indigenous peoples. Now, Mr. Speaker, yesterday the Prime Minister said something in this House that simply was not true. He said that in the TMX case, the courts had ruled that free, prior and informed consent did not constitute a veto. They did no such thing. The court ruled that the duty to consult did not grant a veto. Now, a United Nations declaration that this government is planning on uh, proposing will, in fact, require free, prior and informed consent and will give one group that does not want to proceed with a project out of effective veto. So, will the Liberals abandon their plans to implement this UN resolution? The Honourable Minister of Justice. Mr. Speaker, I was honoured to receive in my mandate letter from the Prime Minister uh, the, one of the, the task of implementing UNDRIP into our, into our Canadian law. One of our priorities, therefore, is to introduce co-developed legislation to implement UNDRIP uh, by the end of 2020. Mr. Speaker, we will be engaging with Canadians, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, and working in partnership, in particular with Indigenous peoples, to make the declaration a reality in, in Canada as a framework for reconciliation. All right, now let's look at the facts behind all of this. Now, the police are technically following the law, enforcing the injunction ordered by the Supreme Court of B.C., Coastal GasLink has provincial approval to go ahead with the project. They also have agreements with 21st Nations bans along the proposed pipelines route. 
However, hereditary chiefs point to a Supreme Court of Canada decision that may make all of this police enforcement illegal and could mean consultation was inadequate on behalf of the government in approving the project, which has happened before. We'll get to that. First, the smoking gun. The Supreme Court decision, Dalgamook at Stayaway, in 1997, recognized the rights and title of the Wet'suwet'en and Gitsan people. Now, many get confused between two government systems in the Wet'suwet'en, the Band Council, and the Hereditary Chiefs. The conflict between the two systems has been criticized as a divide-and-conquer strategy on behalf of the Canadian government and the Indian Act of 1876. That's when the reserve system and the elected Band Council was created as a governance system for First Nations people. Industry and government often use the Band Council to gain Aboriginal approval for large resource projects. It allegedly gets worse. According to documents obtained by the media outlet The Narwhal, the B.C. government and the resource industry wanted First Nations to give up those newly won rights and title back in 97. To gain approval for anything that happens on Wet'suwet'en land, it's argued the government has to go through the hereditary chiefs. That's a system of governance involving feast halls, potlatches, clan meetings, and other traditional governance, not elected councils. And don't forget the precedent-setting 1997 Supreme Court decision. The Band Council only has jurisdiction on their small municipality, while the hereditary chiefs, according to the 97 Supreme Court decision, have authority over the whole territory where the project is proposed. For the Wet'suwet'en, we have 22,000 square kilometers, and it's unceded, undefeated, and non-treaty lands. John Ridsdale's hereditary chief name is Namox. His clan is one of five within the nation. And the elected uh, governments of British Columbia and Canada, they only have assumed and presumed authority on the territories. We actually, as hereditary chiefs, we are the authority on our land. For decades, multinational megacorporations have seen the territory as part of a route to ship oil and natural gas via pipelines. Since the police raid last year, the hereditary chiefs allowed Coastal Gas Link temporary access to the territory. Things are less diplomatic now as they want pipeline workers evicted. Resistance to the project and the previous plans for an oil pipeline, Northern Gateway, were started years ago by the Unistotin. They originally built a camp in the right-of-way of the project's route. Since then, they've built a healing lodge for Indigenous people in the community. The centre is also a pilot project for the First Nations Health Authority, which is part of the B.C. government. There are some accusations of a conflict of interest with a First Nations Health Authority staff member and their work with the centre and resistance. The FNHA say they're aware of the potential conflict of interest and say they'll monitor the situation. Now back to rights and title. A major concern is the pipeline would run straight through the territory, possibly affecting the headwaters of a major river system. And the way that we look after the lands with the forest that we have, the lakes, the rivers, well over 90% of our creeks, rivers, and lakes you can drink out of. Like it is pristine. We have a lot of pristine territory, especially in the back country there. And when you get industry or elected officials coming in and um, deciding that the monetary value is has more importance than actually the pristineness of the territories itself. We as hereditary chiefs in our Wet'suwet'en nation itself say no, there has to be places left on earth where it has to be left pristine. I think we have to look at the long term and it has to be sustainable. Like we're not against industry, like the largest sawmill on the entire planet is on our territory. 
So we're not against industry, but it's what form it comes into and what is threatened. Like when they say minimal damage, well, it's 100% damage if that land has not been touched before. The territories that I'm responsible for on the back end of the Wet'suwet'en Territory itself are pristine. There are no roads in there. There's no logging activity, no mining activity. And, uh, yeah, it's my duty as Chief Namox to look after that. And as Namox mentioned previously, the Wet'suwet'en, like all First Nations people in B.C., have never signed a treaty with the Crown, meaning their lands are unceded. Namox says that is vital in fighting the court injunction that is aimed at making disrupting the Coastal Gas Link project illegal. With uh, this last court ruling from uh, Justice Church, I believe we'll probably appeal that. And in her ruling, she also said that there are some uh, issues that she cannot deal with, and they are actually constitutional issues. Like when uh, we went to court during Delgamuk, the Stayway court case with our cousins, the Gitsan, in there, they accepted our oral history, and she basically denied it on this last one. She kind of referred to it as hearsay when, no, it's our history. Like, we had our history passed on for thousands of years before European contact and having it written down, and that's the way we do it. We use our traditional laws, our fees call, our governance system to maintain our security on the land and the security of the land itself. Well, on December 31st, the judge made a ruling to uh, uphold the interlocutory injunction. And uh, in the injunction, um, she said that, uh, you know, we were being a private nuisance. And uh, she used the words blockades. And she said in our history of Wet'suwet'en, we never had blockades. But um, she actually uh, had not read how we protected our territories the most. We're one of the last, if not the last, uh, indigenous people of European contact. It's because we protected our territories and our boundaries. And she sta- stated that um, the permits that were um, issued by the province of British Columbia and the Oil and Gas Commission hold priority over our jurisdiction, our authority, and uh, that the company would suffer irreparable harm, i.e. thus far $5 million in delayed project. And uh, to me, that really is a very weak argument. Namox has made several trips to the UN fighting for their right to protect their water and land. That's a point he's also been tirelessly stressing to the government at all levels. Like if we can't leave things the way they are and we actually want to improve it to the human form, which is actually industry, then what is actually left for the animals and what is left for the forest itself. And, you know, as of uh, October 24th, I was in the legislature when the premier of this province of British Columbia stated that it would be legislated that United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People would be legislated. And yet I've seen uh, no change in that at all. And within there, it also states that we have a right to use our lands as we see fit. And there are places that should be left alone. Well, even for our our hunting and trapping, we don't go to the same areas year after year. We stop using certain areas for that, let it replenish, use other areas. This way we have so much territory in certain areas that we use at certain times of the year. But we always monitor what's on the land. 
And like I said, currently with uh, elected governments and industry, uh, they just put a price tag on it. They just want to take, take, take. They never think about what is going to be there later. Like they get to come in, do whatever they want with whatever industry they're, they're doing, then they get to go home. Well, we are home. We are the ones that are left with the mess. The struggle with Coastal GasLink is nothing new for the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs. They've opposed Enbridge's previous plans to build Northern Gateway, a pipeline that would have gone through their lands carrying oil from Alberta to the Pacific Ocean. In 2016, the Federal Court of Appeal ruled that the federal government failed to consult with First Nations groups affected by the pipeline, overturning its approval. The Pacific Northwest LNG project was another that was cancelled in 2017. The Malaysian-based Petronas cancelled that project due to poor market conditions. If built, the $36 billion export facility would have been the largest in the province's history. For the Wet'suwet'en, the export facility attached to that natural gas pipeline was a threat to a salmon estuary on the Pacific coast, potentially affecting the entire Skeena watershed. They were involved in a court battle against the approval of that project, arguing there was a lack of consultation. Others see the delays and cancellations of these projects as a loss of economic opportunity. I mean, all across Canada, First Nations, 80 to 90 percent unemployment. And it's been like this for the last how many decades? 50 decades. It's been forever. Skeena Liberal MLA Ellis Ross, who represents northern communities that neighbor the Wet'suwet'en, say the general public has missed the point. He says the social issues on reserves around the country are constantly ignored. Ross is also the official opposition critic for LNG and resource opportunities with the government and was an elected chief councillor of a First Nations community. And nobody has been able to provide a solution. And so can you imagine, and I'm talking to the United Nations people that put out this declaration that uh, Canada should down, shut down all its projects. I'm talking to all those academic people who actually make these declarations without even talking about the First Nations that are going to prison, the First Nations that have no job, the First Nations who are giving up their kids to government care, uh, the First Nations who have no pathway, they got no future, so they resort to alcohol abuse and drug abuse, they got nothing. Where do you guys get off on making these statements when you have no responsibility to these First Nation members in question? I'm not talking about the leadership. I'm not talking about the councils. I'm not talking about all these other guys. They're well off. They're always going to be well off. It's the membership. It's the people themselves that need a future. And this has been proven all across Canada. Every time you build a future based on economic development, you provide a job, you resolve poverty. And once you resolve poverty, then you can tackle the other social issues that are plaguing us as a society. Can you imagine being an Aboriginal leader and looking at your own community and seeing 80% unemployment? And you can see the welfare list growing and growing and growing. And you can see your kids falling into the same pattern that you did as you, as you, when you were a young man or you were a young woman. And you feel helpless. And yet your people are screaming for independence. They're screaming for, for a, a better future for their kids, their grandkids, and you can't do anything about it because your hands are tied under the Indian Act. And then along comes the Hyder Court case on a duty to consult and accommodate back in 2004, and the whole world economic development opens up. 2004, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that the Crown has a duty to consult with First Nations before exploiting lands where there may be a claim. That means First Nations have a seat at the table for decisions on projects. 
However, Ross says the UN has been getting in the way of progress by supporting opposition. And yet everybody becomes an expert, a social expert on Aboriginals, and yet nobody talks about the number one social issue facing Aboriginals across Canada. You guys should be ashamed of yourselves and the United Nations. Go pound sand. That is the most polite way I can tell. And for the leaders of Canada and BC, how can you take a paternalistic approach to the United Nations telling Canada what to do? Grow a spine. You're supposed to be a country. But every time that frickin' United Nations burps, you go run in the corner and apologize to the United Nations. Who the hell is United Nations? United Nations has got no responsibility to Canada, let alone responsibility to First Nations of Canada. They could care less about us. They make all these declarations and they go run around, they go leave, and they leave us to our poverty. They leave us to our social issues. So the argument there is jobs. It's an argument that echoes the rhetoric of companies to sell large oil and gas pipeline projects across North America. And it's an argument that governments seem to stand behind. After all, it's more tax dollars, jobs, and means resources like oil and gas can get to market. But who really profits? Opposition to large resource projects argue companies are taking raw product offshore for refinement, leaving no value added to Canadians. With many of the jobs for pipeline projects being short-term, it's argued the environmental risk of a spill isn't worth it. Many of the projects will see multi-billions of dollars in investments and profits, while communities and reserves often get payments in the millions. The divide in opinion has stoked a heated discourse that fractures communities and First Nations across the country. Many municipalities have been fighting to have more of a fair return on the trillions of resource dollars and profits that make their way out of the country. That's a different story that will be covered in another podcast, but it's worth noting, and it's definitely a problem with multinationals around the world. I have no problem with progress. You know, we all love great education and great health care, but there has to be a limit as well. And we should not, as Indigenous people, have to carry the weight of a deficit that elected officials created. Hopefully the indigenous people of the earth can help us with a troubled future. Global warming and the destruction of ecosystems around the world seems to be on a crash course. The United Nations sees indigenous people and their knowledge and connection to the land vital in fighting climate change. According to a paper in the journal Nature, 23% of Earth's wilderness remains, and 70% of that is in five countries, Russia, Canada, USA, Brazil, and Australia. According to the United Nations, 50% of that land is held informally by Indigenous people. Narrow that down to what's tenure secure, and Indigenous people own about 10% of that wilderness land legally. Hopefully, governments, corporations, the media, and the people look at the importance that Indigenous-owned land has in protecting us from climate catastrophe. If we listen and act instead of virtue signaling, maybe we might make it through this whole mess. If we can work together with Indigenous people and wake up to the value of the limited land we have left, we can protect ourselves from our own greed and mismanagement. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to tune in to our next episode. We'll be hearing from some experts and Indigenous elders about the situation facing Native bees. See you next time.